Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Here's a story about which vaccine has a leg up on all the others. All of the available vaccines have been proven to be safe and effective against serious illness and hospitalization, but there is one that stands above the rest. A series of studies have found that the Moderna vaccine may provide the most protection when it comes to antibodies and hospitalization. Part of it may be that the vaccine delivers a larger dose than Pfizer does. For more on why Moderna has the edge, we'll speak to Apoorva Mondavili, reporter at the New York Times. I'm glad you started out saying all of the vaccines are very effective. So I think that's number one, that they are all actually extremely good at preventing severe disease and hospitalization, which is ultimately the big goal for these vaccines. But what has emerged over the last few months is that in some of these studies, it's looking like the protection from Moderna is a little bit more durable. It's staying at higher levels over time than the protection from Pfizer. We already sort of knew that the J&J vaccine is a little bit less protective than the other two. We knew that from the clinical trials, but we thought that Pfizer and Moderna were basically the same. And what these studies are showing us is that they're almost the same, but Moderna's slightly ahead. (laughs) All right. So we've seen about 221 million doses of Pfizer go out, about 150 million doses of Moderna go out. And what we're seeing is a couple of studies that have looked into some of this stuff. But, you know, one of the things uh, that came out, I guess the CDC had uh, some research that was published just this past week talking about at least hospitalization rates and, um, you know, protecting against hospitalization. For Pfizer, that was at 91%. That fell to 77% after a four-month period. For Moderna, there was no decline over that same period. That's right. So, you know, most of these studies are showing differences at those levels. So in this study, the Moderna and the Pfizer were different by about 14 or 15 points. And that's sort of what a bunch of studies have shown is that Pfizer seems to be trailing Moderna by about 10 to 15 points. When it comes to severe disease and hospitalization, the differences are a little bit bigger when it comes to um, preventing infection. But again, severe disease is the big goal. And so that's really what we're looking at. And in fact, there was a, a new study that just came out today in the New England Journal of Medicine showing a similar trend. They found that 5,000 healthcare workers, they looked at Pfizer and Moderna, and they found Pfizer is about 90% and Moderna is about 96 So, you know, they're all showing these these small differences between the two. And then one of the other studies that we saw had to deal with antibodies and how Moderna produced, I guess, one-third to one-half more than Pfizer did. Is that something like that? You know, that sounds like a huge difference when you hear about it, one-third to one-half, but these are not differences in how effective the vaccines are. These are just differences in what we call antibody titers. And just for comparison, just in among a regular population, there can be a hundredfold difference between people. So a two to threefold difference is nothing at all and really doesn't have much of a clinical impact. So scientists are not really worried about that. It seems more like over the long term, we know that antibodies wane and it's possible that Pfizer's wane a little bit more than Moderna's. Right. Yeah, so exactly. Don't freak out if you got Pfizer. It, you're still you're, <laughs> you're still doing very well. But that's kind of, you know, just human nature to compare and contrast and even in your own head. And that's what we were doing with uh, Johnson & Johnson as well with that, all that preliminary data that showed it wasn't as, fect- as effective as the mRNA vaccines. We've seen Johnson & Johnson come out with some other research saying that a second dose, you know, a booster shot 
kind of boost it up to what those mRNA vaccines do. So this is all in keeping, you know, they're, they're all still very, very effective. So what does this do for that conversation about booster shots? You know, that's interesting. I think, you know, I've just been listening to the CDC advisors debate all day about which boosters people should get and which people should get them and when. And it's a little bit confusing because right now Pfizer is the one that is up on the table for the FDA to decide about. But, you know, it'd be very tricky for them to recommend that only people who got Pfizer before should get Pfizer. Well, what about all the people who got Moderna? So it's not very clear what's going to happen. It's possible they'll just delay a decision until the Moderna one is also available. Moderna's already applied. It's just the conversation is taking longer. So um, I don't want anybody to come away with the impression that Moderna is so much better that they should all just go get the Moderna booster. I don't think that's what these data are showing at all. It's just documenting, for example, there are differences in how much of the dose that each vaccine delivered. Pfizer used 30 micrograms and Moderna used 100. Both companies were just guessing at the start of the pandemic. So that may be one of the differences. And Pfizer spaced its two doses by three weeks. Moderna spaced its by four. And there's some evidence that that, you know, it might be better to have those two doses staggered longer, which we couldn't do. Again, at the start of the pandemic, we just did not have that luxury. But now that we have a little bit more time, there are some studies showing that it might be better to have the second dose come later. So there's a bunch of things here that we need to think through before we decide what to do with boosters. And I think that's what the FDA and the CDC are really spending time on right now. Apoorva Mondavilli, reporter at The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. It didn't take much time for the first test to come through on the Texas abortion law. A San Antonio physician named Alan Braid recently wrote an op-ed admitting that he performed an abortion despite the new law. What came next were actually two lawsuits against him, with neither of the plaintiffs having a particular objection to the abortion, but rather looking to challenge the law. For more on why these two are suing, we'll speak to Elizabeth Findell, Texas reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Well, it's interesting because, of course, the Texas law was designed so that the state is not the architect of enforcement. It essentially deputizes private citizens either in Texas or anywhere else to sue anyone they think might have assisted in in abortion and potentially earn, you know, $10,000 or more. And so after this, editorial was public, you had two different former attorneys in different states file lawsuits who are not affiliated with any pro or anti-abortion groups and are just sort of random dudes. (laughs) Um, Neither of them really object to the abortion in any particular way. Like you said, they're kind of random guys, but they want to test the law more, it seems like. That's definitely correct. One of them is a former attorney up in Chicago, and he essentially said that he thinks it's hypocritical of the GOP to try to control people's bodies. He said he doesn't believe in you know, some of the pandemic things like wearing a mask, being forced to get a vaccine. And he sees this law as sort of hypocritical to that vision. And then the other man is a former attorney in Arkansas who's actually serving a 15-year sentence for tax fraud. So he's on home confinement. And he said he read about the case and it made him mad because he thought it was sort of an end run were his words around established law. 
And he figured, you know, if someone was going to make $10,000, it might as well be him. Or if not, he wanted the court to sort out whether this law was legitimate or not. Yeah, I, the quote from him on that one, as you just said, if someone's going to get that $10,000, it might as well be me who gets that money. So, I mean, you can kind of see where the motivation there is a little bit. But as I mentioned, first test of the law What would propel this, I guess you could say, to higher courts up to the Supreme Court where it would ultimately really have to get hashed out to kind of come down on this? I mean, could both of these things get thrown out? The doctor already admitted that he did perform the abortion. I think there are a lot of questions at this point because these are the first cases that we've seen under this law. So I don't know if we know super well what this level of proof is going to be for establishing what abortion did occur, and then which of these cases will move forward. If they both continue to move forward, both of these gentlemen are representing themselves. They don't have more established attorneys handling them right now. And so because we haven't seen this before, it's hard to know exactly how these cases are going to move. But It does seem to be this sort of interesting situation of the law working almost the way it was designed to work with just sort of Joe Citizen suing someone he thinks might have performed an abortion. I mean, you got some statements from uh, the Texas Right to Life organization, one of the from their legislative director. They haven't sued anybody yet. and, And they're kind of even being cautious with this. Also, they said, you know, we don't really know all the details of this particular case, you know, when exactly was the abortion performed, if they had detected a heartbeat yet. Um, So even, you know, some of these uh, anti-abortion groups are being really careful with this. Because as as I mentioned, you know, the ultimate goal of all these legal challenges is going to be to get it to the Supreme Court to put like a final uh, decision on all of this. Yes. And usually when you have that happen, there's a sort of test case that people are looking for. And I think the lawsuits that we saw filed yesterday are not necessarily the test cases that either side was looking for. All right. Well, we'll see what happens with all this. Uh, You know, who knows where this goes? But as you mentioned, people are looking for that test case and see to see what can happen. Elizabeth Findell, Texas reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Finally, for this week, Facebook knows that Instagram can be a problem for teen girls. According to their own internal research, 32% of teen girls say that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse. And while there are many social media platforms out there, some of these problems were specific to Instagram. TikTok focuses on video and performance. Snapchat keeps the focus on the face with fun filters. But Instagram centers on the body and lifestyle, making the social comparisons worse. For more on Facebook's own research showing that this has been a problem, we'll speak to Georgia Wells, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. So for the past three years, Facebook has been conducting studies into how Instagram affects users. And repeatedly, these Instagram researchers have found that Instagram is harmful for a sizable percentage of them, most notably teen girls, which you mentioned. Like, for example, a quote from one of the documents is 32 percent of teen girls said that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse. Or another one is. We make body image issues worse for one in three teen girls. And this was a slide summarizing research of teen girls who had experienced these issues. So their findings are clearly quite stark. Yeah. And those quotes that you're saying are are they're taken from slides, from actual research presentations that they are showing to people internally at Facebook. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So Facebook has researchers on staff who specialize in how to run these both qualitative and quantitative studies. And they've conducted these. And what we're looking at is documents from when they were sharing their findings internally with their own colleagues. Now, one of the things to get off of the table real quick before we get started, and a lot of this, as I mentioned, is coming from this research. You say, well, okay, Instagram isn't culpable in all of this. You know, there's a lot of other social media platforms out there. TikTok is very popular with the younger crowd right now. Snapchat, all this stuff. But a lot of this stuff is specific to Instagram because of the way all the platforms play out. TikTok is uh, is mostly videos, so it's performance-based. And Instagram is very specific photos. So uh, explain that a little bit. Specifically, the mechanism by which kind of a lot of these teen girls appear to be affected is this thing called negative social comparison. And that's this dynamic where if someone's kind of scrolling through an app and looking at other users, rather than just kind of this uh, kind of stance of like, oh, I'm learning about other people and what they're up to, they tend to approach it from the stance of, well, how do I stack up next to these other people in terms of beauty or wealth or success or, you know, their beautiful families or relationships or whatever. And in the research, the researchers say that they've found that this issue of negative social comparison is worse on Instagram than other platforms. So specifically on TikTok, users are sheltered in some part because so much of the content on TikTok is performance-based. It's not taken to mean real life. And on Snapchat, people often use, like, A, it focuses on the face, but also people often use these filters that tend to be more fun or, like, playful than beautifying, like, you know, like, turn your face into that of, like, a puppy dog or something. The reason all this matters that in their documents they say literally social comparison is worse on Instagram than the other platforms is in the past when I've spoken with executives at Facebook about like, hey, how does your platform affect teen mental health? Often the response has been couched in this, con- in this language that they've used around like, hey, it's not just a Facebook problem. This is like a social media problem. And here we're seeing literally internally they're saying, oh, no, it's worse on our platform. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so we're starting to see some of this research internally from Facebook about their product, Instagram. In public, though, when Mark Zuckerberg and other officials are talking about Facebook, uh, I'm sorry, when they're talking about Instagram, what are they saying when it comes to these issues of mental health? This past March, if you recall, there was a hearing on Capitol Hill, and Mark Zuckerberg was called along with the CEOs of other companies to talk about their platforms in general. And one of the questions that one of the senators asked Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg was about like children and mental health. And his response at the time was, quote, the research that we've seen is that using social apps to connect with other people can have positive mental health benefits, end quote. So, yes, it's technically. Pretty, pretty broad right there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right, exactly. Like, sure, that's a technical truth, right? Yeah, I don't it, think anyone's disputing. But <laughs> if, you put it, if you put it in the context of people being lonely, needing some friends and reaching out to others, yeah, maybe social media and Instagram can be very beneficial in that way. But, you know, when it comes to these specific things of mental health and body issues, you know, the evidence points to the contrary. Exactly. Like throughout the course of all of this reporting, Facebook's research on Instagram seems to represent one of the clearest gaps we've ever seen kind of between Facebook's understanding of itself and the public position that they're taking. And Mark Zuckerberg's quote, I think, is a really strong example of that. And, and they know, you know, they were losing a lot of younger users on Facebook and Instagram came up, was already kind of a hit when they purchased Instagram. And they saw that as as the future for them, a, a way to 
really still connect with younger people and keep growing the platform there. So, you know, the follow through for them has not been there. You know, they, they're seeing these problems pop up, but they're doing little to address it. it, it it's tough, right? You, you want to keep uh, as many people on the platform while trying to address some of these issues. Facebook's own data now show that like Instagram is toxic for many teenage girls, but expanding their user base of these young users is really vital to their more than like $100 billion in annual revenue. And they don't want to jeopardize their engagement with the platform. How do they conduct some of this research? Because they're doing a lot of stuff, focus groups, I mean, connecting with people uh, directly on the app. So just for the purposes of, you know, bolstering their own research, right? How do they conduct a lot of this? Yeah, they do focus groups, like you mentioned. In the past couple of years, they started doing these really huge, like large scale surveys of tens of thousands. And in one case that I'm aware of, more than 100,000 users from around the world. And then what they'll do is they'll compare these users' responses with the logs of what these users actually did or viewed on Instagram. It's really powerful research and data in terms of just kind of this like quest for people around the world to learn more about how these platforms affect people. Because in the past, outside researchers, even if they've wanted to do this kind of thing, they haven't had access to this kind of data. It's really powerful research. So some of this research obviously points in this negative direction. To be fair, some of the research also says that it isn't harmful for all users. Some teenagers can you know, avoid this kind of negative social comparison that they can manage it at least and, and see it for what it's worth. Just to bolster that point, also like negative social comparison, it's not new. Like it's been around forever. You know, when I was a kid, there was a lot of concern about what Photoshop in like fashion magazines, how that would affect young people. But now what's new is the amount of time young people, especially teen girls are spending on these platforms and kind of the rabbit hole behavior of just like just getting sucked in and having a hard time leaving it and feeling like they're going to miss out from their friends if they put it down. So what is Facebook and Instagram doing to remedy some of these things? Because as we mentioned, you know, publicly, they're not necessarily acknowledging a lot of their own internal research, but they are doing certain things. I remember, you know, uh, some time back they were trying to uh, play around with removing the likes or the counts of likes that you get on pictures, things like that. And I guess someone else had suggested internally, let's give people less of celebrities and lifestyles and more uh, people closely associated with users. Yes, the removing the like count is kind of a head scratcher because what happened was they heard from teens over and over again that the like counts caused this anxiety and pressure for them around posting. And so they experimented with removing the like counts and they found it didn't actually seem to improve user happiness when they removed the like counts. So they did roll out the option for users to remove like counts on their accounts. Earlier this month, we spoke with Adam Masseri. He's the head of Instagram about kind of what they're working on. And he cautions that he doesn't think that there are any silver bullets to really fix this easily, but he's cautiously optimistic about some work they're doing to kind of show nudges to users who might be going down dangerous paths of content to try and like kind of steer them back to healthier content and also potentially nudges around like reminding users to take breaks. And so he said it was too early to tell what kind of impacts they'd have, but those are two that I think would be really worth, you know, people keeping an eye on. Georgia Wells, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating. 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.